The Bain Free Radio Hour. Welcome to the Bain Free Radio Hour. It's a pleasure to have you along. I am Bain Associate Editor and your podcast host, David Afshirod. For July, we had three mass market reprints of hardcovers and trade paperbacks that had come out sometime last year. They were The Icarus Plot by Timothy Zahn, Trouble Walked In by Mike Coopery, and the anthology Robo Soldiers, Thank You for Your Servos by Stephen Lawson, or edited by Stephen Lawson, I should say. We interviewed uh, everybody associated with these books on the podcast back when they were first released in their hardcover or trade paperback formats, but thought we would give you a sort of greatest hits look at those interviews today. So if you happen to have missed them or if you just didn't have a chance to pick up the books, hopefully this will uh, pique your interest and you can give them a first look or a second look. So now we offer up uh, Timothy Zahn about the Icarus plot. Mike Coopery on Trouble Walked In, and Stephen Lawson and some of the contributors to Robo Soldiers. Thank you for your servos. Uh, so the Icarus plot is the the second book, like I mentioned, and uh, the first book, the Icarus Hunt, uh, focuses on uh, Jordan McKay. Uh, um, wow, I was just gonna Mikhail. I was gonna say Mikhail, and I was like, no, Mikhail. it's, it's yeah. Mikhail. Um, and his crew, it's kind of a ragtag crew, um, as a whole bunch of other people are, are, are hunting them down. And, um, uh, we learn some things about them through that book. And then we get to this book and this book focuses on, uh, Gregory Rourke and Celine and, um, not so much as a big crew this time. They're, they're a, an operating pair. Um, but then as the, the story progresses, you know, we add characters into the mix. Um, but I wanted to, to start out our conversation just kind of talking about, you know, um, the, the general inspiration that you had for the series as a whole and then kind of like what you enjoy doing about the series because it's kind of um, it's similar in some aspects to what you what you uh, what you write, but it's it's more. Um, uh, uh, niche in that yeah it's it's yeah it's more of a what's going to happen more than a than a an action-packed like you know uh battles and all this stuff it's it's very kind of hmm uh interesting a mental challenge to figure out what's going on yeah more of a a mystery uh, thriller is probably not the right word but a mystery puzzle box um who is doing what, who is, what size everybody on, um, what's going on, all that sort of thing that hopefully will become very clear by the end. Right. But with a few surprises along the way. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, we talked that, that the, the two protagonists in, in the books are different. What was your thought process there? And then um, when you went to create the the new character of Gregory, what were you what were you wanting to do that would make this book stand out differently than the first book? But Jordan's a really interesting character um, and you learn a lot about him as you go through the book. And same thing here with Jordan, too. By the way, I love the um, my father used to say bits through the entire <laughs> 
but I, I kept waiting for the penny to drop and like his dad would come out and say, I never said that. I kept waiting for that to happen. Uh, um, uh, so what, what was your inspiration for, for Gregory and then also Celine too, because Celine is really interesting. When I first, I've been looking for a new plot for this universe for about 20 years and finally got one, uh, pitched the proposal to my agent, and he said that 20 years later, it's going to be hard for people to jump back into this saga. But he suggested others of his clients with this uh, same situation would set it in the same universe, but with new protagonists. So I decided to go that route. Uh, Gregory was going to be, uh, he's a, used to be a bounty hunter, so he's got those skills. But after a, a bad accident that you read about in the book, uh, he and his and Celine became Crockett's instead. Uh, the trailblazers, they go. I love that term. Uh, search. Yeah, they search. Um, unknown or un, unexplored planets, uh, send bioprobes in to see what kind of uh, little bit of biology, whether it's worth uh, someone buying the planet and uh, developing it. So uh, they've gone to with this much simpler, much safer sort of uh, endeavor. Uh, Celine was a, I wanted her to just, the, the unique ability, the Cadolian people have this incredible sense of smell, uh, can pick out somebody's scent after they've touched something days ago, and thought that would be an, a unique sort of thing, and also drive the plot, because that ability is what uh, the other people in the book uh, need, and so this is why they hire them. Only things are not quite what they seem, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, but then fold in some of the original characters from the book where it made sense to do that. And um, just just went from there. Uh, it just as a side note, uh, my son did the uh, copy editing of this. And when he had finished reading, he said to me, that uh, he really wanted to meet uh, Gregory's dad someday. <laughs> I had not ever thought of having, you know, as my father used to say, is kind of one of his catchphrases. It's similar to the old Banachek, uh, old Polish proverb sort of thing, which he would then make up out of whole cloth. Right, um, exactly. And so I figure book four or five, I'm going to have to bring his dad in. Oh, uh, you mentioned uh, yep. Celine and, and her unique abilities. And, um, what I really enjoyed about those abilities is, um, you know, sometimes with, especially with sci-fi books, but sometimes with fantasy, but a lot of times with sci-fi, you give aliens some really cool abilities, or you give the characters some cool abilities and they're cool to watch. They're cool to see happen, but they don't sometimes, a lot of times really affect the plot or affect what the other characters are doing around them. And, you know, Celine and Gregory kind of get underestimated in a lot of situations where her abilities, um, really people don't take them, like they understand what they are, but they don't take them into account the way they should. And I like uh, the way that you use them consistently through the book. And then even having... Um, the um jerry character know that but then like 
he knows it, but he doesn't say it. And he uses it against him. And uh, yeah. um, when you're, when you're going through these stories or especially with this, I mean, you know, you have the star Wars stuff, you have all those things where people know about that, but I think developing these new things and, and adding them into the plot, is that something you're, you're wanting to, to develop these new things to add to the story? And it was that those abilities, did they come before you started writing the story or did they come like just as you were developing it? Uh, pretty much I had the idea of her being able to, to, to do this uh, scent tracing and such. Uh, and of course that then developed, went how the plot uh, developed uh, in my mind. But yeah, you're, you're absolutely right that people can know something and not factor it into their, their thinking, their planning. It just it takes a while to reset your brain that way. Mm -hmm. uh, just recently started playing upwards with people. I'm a Scrabble player, yeah. but uh, the game night upwards where you can add a letter on top of another one. I know the rule, but my brain is not trained yet to look at a word and see if I add change this letter and this letter, I can make a new word. It's something that I, I know the rule, but I don't think it yet. Exactly. I think that's a lot of what uh, what's in this book. That the, the antagonists understand what she can do, but it doesn't factor into their planning as much as it should. Right. Um, the one of the things that I really liked about the the first book and and enjoyed about the second book are the are the kind of uh, twists and double twists and um, you know, characters, uh, conning everyone is not the right thing that's happened, but, but everybody seems to have their own little con game that they're running on everybody else. And, um, it's interesting after reading the first book and then kind of not when I went into the first book, I really didn't know what to expect. And so reading it and then having all that stuff happen, I was like, oh, that's really cool. And then going into the second book, I was like, oh, I'm looking for it this time because I want to see if I can see it. Um, and it was interesting. Sometimes I was like, is that it? Is that? And then it turns out it wasn't. And then this other things that I, you know, you'd see um, the ferrets, for instance, in different places. And you're like, I think I know what that is. But then you're like, um, surely that's not the, you know, Ixel is not the only alien that's around in the area. So it's, it, it was really cool to see not overdone either, but just these little parts where th the characters are seeing something and maybe they don't truly understand what they're seeing, but that's as the reader, you're like, Oh, I think I know what's happening here. Yeah. And uh, we, you don't want to do the same plot twist with each book. Uh, right. So the, this one has doesn't have that same kicker at the end, but it does have enough little twists and turns and reveals that um, it should be satisfying without, again, going over the same territory. Sure. Uh, is that something that you consciously wanted to do with these books just to kind of keep people on their toes? Because it's I think you could very easily have done just a straightforward plot, but this kind of bounces back on itself. And there's a lot of other variables that are get put into, which, which kind of 
kind of make it flip-flop on itself a couple of times before the realization happens for the reader and also for the characters themselves. Yeah, I mean, that was the flavor of the first book of yeah. what's going on. Oh, I understand. Oh, wait, no, I guess I don't. And bring it all, tying it all together at the end. I, I mean, they, yeah, I mean, a straightforward plot. What's the fun of that? Right. So uh, right. Yeah, this is this this is that this is that style of book. I tend to put a little bit of puzzle box into I think every every book I do just because it's fun and the readers seem to enjoy it. Uh, but yeah, this is this type of Ic Ic the original Icarus hunt was that kind, as you say. And I want all of the ones in the series to be that way as well. Different um, plot twist, uh, different what is going on and is it correct or is it is it uh is there another layer underneath here i need to know about hi this is uh dj butler uh i'm here with mike cooper to talk about his new novel trouble walked in uh it's out now in trade paper and all your favorite ebook formats drm free when you buy them at Bain.com, of course, as always. Uh, Mike Cooper, he started writing in high school. He didn't really get into it until college when he began writing fiction online. Uh, he never seriously considered trying to be a novelist, though, not until 2006. That's the year he met Larry Correa, a fellow you may have heard of. Uh, Larry liked the story Mike was Hello. writing. <laughs> Dave? Yes. Did you just freeze? We had a connection. Apparently, my, my yes, you uh, froze up there, and it said my, now it's saying my internet connection is unstable. How dare you? Your uh, internet connection is unstable. Okay, I'm going to start again. All right, you stabilizing your internet connection there. <laughs> All right. Hello and welcome. This is DJ Butler. Uh, I'm here with uh, the one and only Mike Coopery to talk about his new novel, Trouble Walked In, out now in trade paperback and all your favorite ebook formats, DRM free when you buy them at Bain.com, uh, as always. Mike Coopery started writing in high school. He didn't really get into it until college uh, when he began writing fiction online. He'd never seriously considered trying to be a novelist until 2006, this is the year he met uh, a fellow you may have heard of, Larry Correa. Larry liked a story Mike was writing online and asked if he could jump in on it. That story ultimately became Dead Six, which I hope all of you uh, uh, listening have watched. And if you haven't, uh, then you've got a lovely trilogy uh, of Coopery slash Korea uh, fiction waiting for you. Um, in addition to that uh, trilogy Mike has, this is Mike's fourth solo novel uh, with Bane Books. Mike joins us from the Midwest, uh, where he lives with his wife, his dog, Penny, uh, and also birds. Uh, Mike Coopery, hey, welcome to the Bain Free Radio Hour. Hello, DJ. It's nice to see you. Nice to see you. It's been too long, actually. I, was it LibertyCon that I last? It's been like two years or more. LibertyCon 2018 is the only time I met you in person, as far as I can recall. I think that's probably right. That's the you con where my suitcase didn't show up. I just saw this eight foot tall man in cargo shorts and a tricorn hat and uh, knew it had to be you. <laughs> that guy's a freak. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it's Liberty Con, so not right. comparatively, no. <laughs> right. There's also Mona Lisa walking around in uh, full military regalia with a katana. So, uh, yeah, 
Um, well, fantastic. Uh, well, let's talk a little bit about Trouble Walked In. Um, so, um, I guess maybe a word about genre. This is interesting. This book, from a genre point of view, goes broadly science fiction, right? Broadly, it's easy science fiction. But it kind of goes and pokes into some, into at least two, maybe maybe more other genres. How do you see the genre of this book? What, what books is it like? Uh, what books is it like? That I couldn't tell you. Um, it's It's like a... It's basically a detective story, but it's not just a detective story in space, as someone derisively asked. It's the science fiction elements are actually crucial to the story. So it's not just something that could happen on Earth, but it's on space just for the hell of it. So and it does have involves a conspiracy about an ancient alien life form, which that is always a fascinating thing for me. So that is something I worked into several of my books now and and continuing to work into the books just because it's uh you know, it gives you almost boundless story writing material really yeah 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 so so it's uh there's the pi story it's a little kind of hard-boiled pi uh, and it's not really in space he's on a non-earth planet but never leaves the planet right yeah, yeah there's there's no actual space involved right no actual space uh, uh it's also cyberpunk Right, and it was is very oh okay. We have disagreement. Tell me no, why. No, it's it's got it's got cyberpunk elements in it. It's just the cyberpunk genre has gotten so broad anymore. And then you know, and then they call any other subgenre that's got some weird hook to it. They call it that plus the word punk on the end. But with cyberpunk, it made sense because it had the aesthetic of the the punk rock movement from the eighties, where sure. it was born. Where steampunk is not very. There's punk. no punk rock in the Victorian era. Yeah, there's no punk rock in World War II for your diesel punk. Yeah, no, it's God punk or any of that stuff you hear. Yeah, so it, it does have elements of of, uh, of of cyberpunk in it. You have like some of the existing technology is like neural links where you could plug a computer into your brain to yep. do things easier or faster. And there are side effects that are talked about in there, including crippling addiction, which I think would be a real problem. Yep, and uh, it doesn't work for everybody either. Yeah. Yeah, you've also got uh, the sort of there is a sort of a punk and goth style and aesthetic element, right? Yeah, it's fairly um, prominent. Is it more so in some characters than others. Maybe? It's you see that more in the the main character. His name is Ezekiel Novak. Mm-hmm. His assistant is named Lily, and she's kind of fits that archetype more. She has kind of a goth punk way of dressing. She used to hang out at a nightclub that. Mm-hmm. Where that was the kind of the scene. It's not really Easy's. Easy is his nickname, by the way. It's not really his scene. That's not his world, but it's hers, and that's one of the reasons she makes a great assistant because she knows people and knows things about which he doesn't. Know. But I think that's pretty reflective of the real world. I mean, not the whole world doesn't have one aesthetic or a setting, you know. Sure. sure. I think other elements that you might say, well, that's reflective of the real world, but also I think are very characteristically cyberpunk is. Uh, you've got this clash between big uh, sort of governing mega corporations, right? Government corporations that are so big that they get something like government status or the ability to influence a government. 
and uh, and there's there's some Japanese aesthetic in there. I remember the 80s. I think you're old enough to remember the 80s too, when we thought everyone thought Japan was going to rule the world. What I remember. Saying? I remember movies from the 80s. Okay. I was I was born in 1981, so I wasn't okay. really what you call an 80s kid per so se. We were scared of Japan. Oh yeah, they were gonna they were gonna take over. That was they were gonna take movie. over. We, um, we paid little attention to the fact that they weren't having babies yet. Eventually, we realized that was going to stop them. And also, their economy almost collapsed. There, there was that, too. And so, economy, yeah, they tanked the economy. Uh, but but I, if, I did put some some Japanese elements. There's like a... There's the Yakuza. Make, yeah, like, the, like the Yakuza operate on the planet of Nova Colombia. Yeah. Um, countries on Earth still exist. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, okay, so we've, it's a PI story. It's, it's got some cyberpunk stuff, and it's a first contact. It's Actually, it's not a first contact story. There have been contacts before, but it is a contact with an unknown alien entity um, story, really kind of ultimately, right? That's, kind of, that's where this all ends up. Um, it's, it's kind of a first contact scenario with the particular entity that the story revolves around. Humankind has already encountered other alien races and, in fact, fought a war with an alien race. Yeah. At one point, uh, called the uh, the Ceph. Yeah. So this is so the existence of aliens is not like a new thing, and the uh, existence of the ancient, now extinct alien race they call the Antecessors that's been known for a long time. Yep. And and so some of the the first contact history prior to the story. It's not all uh, buttercups and roses, right? So there's a war, but also there's at least some rumored uh, disaster around uh, discovering or alien contact or alien artifacts, right? Yeah, the antecessors had a technology that referred to in story as a vacuum energy engine. It's a zero point energy, as it's also called. It's their way of just deriving energy from the fabric of the universe. Very... um, you can see where that'd be tempting because it's even if you have fusion power, you're talking unlimited energy anywhere at any time. So that'd be if you could crack that, that'd be it change the world. Problem is that it's you know they're like cavemen monkeying around with a hand grenade. They don't know how it works. And there was an incident at the Medusa Fosse colony on Mars that they think was they were attempting to activate one of these and it destroyed the colony and killed hundred thousand colonists. So the this stuff is pretty heavily regulated just because of the potential risk. So that does leave a window for unscrupulous actors to try to work it through it on the black market, though, get it behind the scenes or to bribe government officials in and let them do what they want with it. Right. Yeah. To jam the regulator and, and use that power to control it. So, OK, so tell us more about Easy. Who is he? Where, what, what's his background? Um what makes him tick? Why is he a PI? Easy is a local. He was born on the planet of Nova Columbia. He's probably in his mid forties or so. Um, he was very much inspired by uh, by the writings of Raymond Chandler. I read some of his work to get a feel for the genre awesome. beforehand, and uh, he's a good guy. Because one thing Raymond Chandler was always adamant about is that the detective is a hero. You know. Later in film noir, you have like these very, very morally ambiguous characters and situations. Easy is not morally ambiguous. He has a very strong sense of right and wrong. Yeah. He always tries to do the right thing. He tries to be responsible. And 
sometimes it works in his favor, sometimes not, but he has his own moral code that's very important to him. Yeah. He's a veteran of the war with the Ceph. He uh, fought on a planet called Harvest, where they had to basically a long, grueling campaign to retake this colony world from the aliens. He, uh, I don't know if I ever got into it in the book, but he was in the mechanized infantry, which is like power armor in the setting. Um, and he also did a job where he was doing technical escort for intelligence uh, operatives as they went and collected and studied Ceph technology. And he made some contacts doing that also. But he, he brings kind of a, you know, just a regular a regular guy, working class uh, point of view to the story. Something I think a lot of readers in my typical target audience will be able to identify with. Yeah. Yeah. He's a good guy doing a job. Yes. Yeah. He uh, came into the agency because someone he was, he served with in the war, wanted to be a detective. And they said if they got through the war together, they'd come back and start the agency. So he did. Well, unfortunately, something happened to his comrade and it left and the agency was bequeathed to him and he maintains it. Well, number one, it's, he's got, he turns out he's quite good at the job. And number two, out of a sense of loyalty to his friend. Yep. Uh, worth noting maybe that easy carries a wheel gun. You're, just, you're kind of a wheel gun fan yourself. Yes. Um, because I have taste and culture. <laughs> um, I've made it a point that in every single work of fiction I write that has something, you know, that has some version of modern firearms in it, somebody will carry a revolver. Yep. This isn't like a conventional revolver. When you reload it, he pushes a lever and the cylinder itself ejects and he replaces it with a new one and they're disposable. It fires explosive tipped ammunition, but it's still a revolver. And it's kind of, you know, there are a lot of revolvers in cyberpunk, even in the cyberpunk 2077 game for all of its flaws, had several different revolver weapons in it. So it's it fits in the genre. Plus, there's a little bit of a Dirty Harry thing going on there, too. Yeah. He's not quick to bring on violence. He doesn't like to use violence. In fact, you know, it can get him in trouble. You can't just go around shooting people. Right. But he's not afraid to do it when he has to. So there, there is some element of that, too. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and and a, and a, as you noted, there's a there's a consistent consistency with the existing Coopery aesthetic. Yes, yes, part of the part of the brand. Yeah, I love it. Um, so I like this point that he's he's not a noir PI, right? And this is something I think people. Um, I mean, I don't know. You get bogged down in discussions of genre, but but people sometimes use, you know, the idea of noir to just mean detective stories. That's really not yeah. it. Yeah. Film noir is a, you know, it's a film technique. Yep. And, you know, it got kind of conflated with detective stories, but detective stories probably predate um, noir film. Noir film came from France. I yep. believe after the 1930s, I think is when it, the genre was kind of born. And it, and it's, there's a lot of overlap, but they're not they're not necessarily the same thing at all. No. Um, you know, the detective stories came from the pulps in the early 20th century. The pulps also, which birthed, you know, science fiction and and fantasy as genres and westerns and romance and everything else, just yeah. about. And uh, well, and they had older antecedents too, right? Detective stories go back to Arthur Conan Doyle, and they go back to Edgar Allan Poe. 
Yes. And um, yeah, and, and and noir. One of these, the basic ideas of noir is this protagonist who's on the edge and has like the you know he's already kind of one foot a lawbreaker and then a bad woman seduces him is classically right the yeah there's some of that and you know there's a lot of just there's a lot of just noir film techniques too Mm. it's not just filming something that's dreary and black and white yeah um i'm not a particular fan of the genre i haven't seen a lot of movies that could be described accurately as film noir but when i concocted this story and it ended up i ended up settling on it'd be kind of a detective story so yeah this is my first attempt at writing a detective story, so I hope it didn't come out to be crap. Yeah, yeah. I, do, I can assure you it did not come out to be crap. I guess I'd just like to ask you each about what inspired your stories, if that's all right. So, Stephen, you did not contribute a story, but putting this together, what was your inspiration? Uh, so second to last story, you'll actually find my name under it. It's called Nightingale. Um, so yeah, uh, the idea for the anthology, actually there's a subtitle on it that says, thank you for your servos. And I just get like weird wordplay in my head sometimes. And it turns into other ideas. I had this idea for like a novel about like this washed up, like, you know, burned out combat veteran robot that's maybe missing some parts and some components from his combat time. He's been demilled and some little girl adopts him and they go save the world together on some mission to fight human trafficking or something like that. And I, I thought about the idea more, like I spent a couple of days on it and I'm like, you know, you could put that title on a lot of things and maybe it could be like an anthology by veterans about like combat robotics and it just kind of evolved from there. Um, I don't think this would have happened without Sean Hazlitt because he's done a lot of groundwork on other anthologies and he's kind of coached me on this stuff. So I said, Hey, Sean, how do you approach this kind of thing? He sent me a, uh, a proposal template that I, I sent to Tony once I had it all filled out. And then I just really had to, to find authors to fill it in. Um, I, I sought primarily veterans, but I had friends like Mona Lisa and Philip uh, and, and Martin that are, that are very smart on some other things, uh, like medicine and, and programming and things like that. So, um, I think I rounded out well with, uh, like three, uh, civilian contributors and the rest are veterans. I asked them to write inside their MOSs or specialties, uh, or ratings, and they did that. And I think it's, it's pretty well rounded out based on that concept. And before I go to our other contributors, thank you for correcting me. Tell us a little bit about Nightingale. Uh, so Nightingale is, is kind of a story that I wanted to write for a long time. And I had this idea of, so I, my story that won the Jim Bain Memorial Short Story Award is it's called Homunculus. It was published in 2018. And it's about this little teeny tiny robot that's piloted remotely, um, which is kind of far-fetched based on um, quantum entanglement used as communication. Uh, so I didn't go quite that far with the science fiction aspect of this. Um, I, I have little AI powered robots that are going to save a guy, but they're lo- basically little teeny tiny commandos that can go um, enable self-rescue. So they've got equipment strapped to them, um, like guns and lock picks and saws and things like that and explosive charges so they can go rescue this guy. Uh, the guy they're rescuing is actually their, their programmer and designer. He's also kind of a, a spy um, and his wife has basically lured in this helicopter pilot. Um, and, you know, she's, she influences him in a number of ways uh, and uses him to go rescue her husband. 
Um, so that's basically the plot of the story uh, for Nightingale. Nightingale is, um, it's a reference that he gives her to Florence Nightingale because she's a flight surgeon. Um, so she's, she's a very resourceful woman. I'll just put it that way. Um, the story has a lot of layers. Uh, their last name is Moreau. So it's kind of an uplifting um, or uplift, I can't remember the term, uh, for elevating another creature into kind of a human status. So they're kind of doing that with the artificial intelligence and giving them extra abilities that they wouldn't have otherwise. Um, so there are layers to it. Uh, nobody's gonna get all of the layers, but there are a lot of them there. Sean, tell us a little bit about Manchurian. Although given your next Weird World anthology, I'm a little afraid to ask where this one goes. So if you enjoy Russian prison tattoos, Chinese super geniuses, and uh, CRISPR super viruses, uh, and rare earth metals, you'll enjoy Manchurian. So it's a novelette, and the idea originally came from a presentation at a conference called DEFCON 19, I think it was. And it was given by the chief medical officer. Yes, they have a chief medical officer at the Intel Corporation. And what he talked about was sort of the, some of the things that you can do with CRISPR uh, weapons. And so I did some research and it turns out that there is a specific gene that codes to the kind of Han, the Han Chinese phenotype. So uh, if you could, you could literally today engineer a weapon that did not, that affected everyone in the world, except 96 to 97% of uh, folks with Han Chinese genes. So what the Chinese do is they unleash this virus through a proxy, which is a Pakistani, you know, Pakistani scientist, because what the impact of the gene is, it targets your skin. So if you, know, if your children go outside, they're, um, their skin is you know, burned essentially. So you've crippled uh, much of the world from the sense of uh, economic potential and things like that. So that's kind of how it starts. The main protagonist has a daughter who has this crippling illness. And you know, there's been several wars with China. Russia is fractured into several different nation states. And there's you know, a, a keen interest in a rare earth metal mine that the Russians actually are, you know, have been building for several years. At, at the same uh, time, the world is kind of, the, the, the Americans have gone all in on cybernetics and the Chinese have gone all in on genetics. So it is a uh, kind of a, a formulation or a projection of what that might look like in 2070. Now, Philip? Tell us about Operation Meltwater. Yes, this was a, a really fun story to write. And I, I detailed a little bit of my process on my blog. And if you're interested in reading that, it's at uh, pakramer.com. Um, you know, it was funny when I was asked to, to do this uh, story or uh, write a contribution, I went back and forth for a good like 11 of the 12 months that I was given to write this thing. It was like really the last month that I did all the writing. Um, and a lot of that was because, you know, I really wanted to one, make this kind of reflective of some area of my, my specialty. Um, two, I wanted to um, try to be as original as I possibly could be, but I didn't 
So like like uh, you were saying earlier, I'm I'm not a member of the military, never have been. Um, I didn't want to write from that point of view so much because I, I felt like I was the outsider, but it, it wasn't kind of the end of the road there for me because scientists have their role to play too in, in uh, warfare. You know, there's a lot of people making the, the tools by which, you know, war is, is made. So, um, so, and there's been a lot of history of, you know, scientists with their tools, um, their inventions used for war when they really didn't want it to be. And so I thought, well, okay, I'll make my point of view from um, uh, the scientists um, of the world. And so I chose kind of an, an older scientist who, who um, had this idea of sending a probe to Enceladus, one of the icy moons of Saturn, and he got this great NASA grant uh, to to work with uh, to work with his uh, scientific instruments company and build this great device that would go to the go to the, um, the moon. And yeah, he was really excited to you know go through all phases of this and build the prototype. And the story starts when they're out on the um, East Antarctic ice sheet and they're testing the prototype. And he's kind of battled with a few NASA engineers there to, to help him, you know, put the prototype through its paces. And it's not until um, he's there and running those tests that he, realize, he realizes the NASA engineers aren't who they seem. Um, they're actually uh, members of, you know, their covert mission specialists. They're there to kind of take his technology and use it for, you know, more nefarious purposes, I guess. Um, and this is kind of a future where, uh, you know, I had to do a lot of background research on, you know, the, the geopolitical landscape on this, but I did come across several articles that described, you know, what Russia might do uh, following the end of the Antarctic Treaty, uh, which is set to expire in 2048. And one of the, some of those articles are like, well, they, they have all these icebreakers, they have all of these um, ice-capable vehicles. They're not going to retire those, you know, they, especially with, you know, uh, warming and stuff and a lot of the Antarctic, or the Arctic ice melting, they might put that to use in Antarctica. And if they controlled both poles, then they would have really the mobility advantage in any war. So I went along with that, you know, this is, Post 2048, Russia has kind of annexed the entire continent, and really the U.S. is doing everything that it can to get them off, because uh, they foresee war coming. And if Russia holds the polls, then that will not end well for the U.S. So, yeah, it's really the scientists' uh, um, effort to, you know, not necessarily stop, but prevent the consequences of. Uh, the the military uh, engineers from using his creation, his NASA probe, um, for really destructive means. A different kind of Cold War. Mona Lisa, <laughs> tell us about resilience. So resilience came out of what was happening at the time that I was writing this with the with the pandemic going on, and um, since I had worked um, with clinical trials. One of the more interesting aspects of working with that was the difference between what a patient perceived that they needed versus what we as researchers would sometimes provide for them. It, it wasn't always um, it wasn't always lined up. So 
I, I started by writing about this, this woman who had, um, had some traumatic event happen to her. And the way that uh, they were treating her was with a, a brain implant to help her with her PTSD. And this implant would manifest as an intelligent agent that would basically talk her down when she was having one of these episodes. And it's about the failure of that intelligent agent to do its job because among other things, it, it, was, it was approaching it from uh, kind of this touchy-feely, um, you know, women helping women overcome things by talking them out or saying, oh, everything will be all right. That doesn't always work for people. Sometimes you need to do other things that are a little bit more active um, and kind of fight back, as it were, even if it's kind of a pretend fight back in order to get the kind of closure that you need. So that's, um, that's kind of what was the seed for, for this particular story. And now we bring you our audiobook serialization of Tinker by Wynn Spencer. Inventor girl genius Tinker lives in a near future Pittsburgh, which now exists mostly in the land of the elves. She runs her salvage business, pays her taxes, and tries to keep the local ambient level of magic down with gadgets of her own design. When a pack of wargs chase an elven noble into her scrapyard, life as she knows it takes a serious detour. Tinker finds herself taking on the elven court, the NSA, the elven interdimensional agency, technology smugglers, and a college-minded xenobiologist as she tries to stay focused on what's really important, her first date. Armed with an intelligence the size of a planet, steel-toed boots, and a junkyard dog attitude, Tinker is ready to kick butt to get her first kiss. The power sink read empty, and the spell had collapsed. Windwolf was cool to the touch, and for a moment she was afraid he had died. She stared at him for what seemed to be eternity before he took a long, deep breath. During the day, Lane had kept drier, warm blankets on Windwolf. The current blanket was cool to the touch. Tinker called Lane. The magic's out. Windwolf's cold. Is there anything I can do? Lie down beside him under the blankets with him. What? Is he even conscious, Tinker? I don't know. Lane was right, though. Tinker was letting the memory of her dream make her self-conscious. A moment ago, she'd been afraid the elf was dead. How aware was he going to be of her? Okay, I'll call you later. Let you know how we're doing. Tinker turned off the lights, took off her boots, and crawled onto the work table with Windwolf. Sometime during the day, his hair had come unbound, it spread into a pool of blackness on the table. To keep from pinning his hair under her, she gathered it into her good hand and carefully moved it all to his right side. It felt as silky as in her dream. She stroked the long, soft strands into order and then carefully cuddled up to Windwolf, trying not to press against any of his wounds. Lying in enforced idleness beside him, however, made her mind churn through possibilities at a feverish speed. Maybe, her brain suggested, she had dreamed so vividly of Windwolf because of the life debt coupled with his proximity. Possibly he had shared the memory. Perhaps he had actually instigated the sex, since it was beyond her normal ken of experience. 
She peered at his still face in the shifting beams of the passing headlights. Come on, Tinker. A male this beautiful and in this much pain doesn't dream about getting it on with scruffy little things like you. Which left her solely responsible. Wow. That was another installment in Win Spencer's Tinker, and that's it for the podcast. Thanks as always to Audible.com and podcast theme composer Ruth Judkowitz. Praise, thanks, and gratitude to everybody who sat down with us about a year ago to talk about their books. And good night, Tony Daniel, wherever you are. This is David F. Shirod coming to you from a soundproof bunker somewhere deep in the heart of Texas. Join us here next week at the hammering heart of science fiction and fantasy and keep reaching for the stars. <laughs> <laughs>